The Bob Murphy Show, episode 195. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Today I'm talking once again with Scott Horton, who has been a frequent guest on the program. Before the coronavirus stuff hit, my discussion with Scott on the what happened at Waco was what largely what we talked about was the most downloaded episode for a long time. Today we're talking about his latest book called Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And as the title of this episode suggests, if that's the reason you clicked on it, we focused mostly on Osama bin Laden and what his objectives were. And, uh, and it had a lot to do with the intertwining of U.S. and Israeli foreign policy. And that's basically most of what the episode consists of, the discussion, because it's, it was getting in a lot of stuff that I think a lot of Americans, when you hear it, you're like, oh, yeah, I kind of remember that stuff when I was younger. Or for young people, you won't remember that because you weren't alive yet. But um, it's this stuff didn't just happen, fall out of a vacuum, right? That there's a history here and that you need to understand regardless of what your own views are as to what ought to be done. For those who don't know, Scott Horton has been a longtime anti-war activist, I guess you'd say. He is one of the principals at the Libertarian Institute. And the blurb there says, along with his work for the Institute, Scott is editorial director of antiwar.com, host of Anti-War Radio on Pacifica 90.7 FM, KPFK in Los Angeles, California and podcast The Scott Horton Show from scotthorton.org. He's also the author of the 2017 book, Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and editor of the 2019 book, The Great Ron Paul, The Scott Horton Show Interviews from 2004 to 2019. And Scott has conducted on his podcast more than 5,000 interviews since 2003. Check it out. He's got a lot of really interesting guests, and they're not just the standard crew of people who do right-wing libertarian podcast. He has a lot of serious intellectuals from the left on, or, or journalists too, in many cases, talking about U.S. foreign policy primarily. So I strongly encourage you to check out Scott's podcast if you haven't listened to the Scott Horton Show. So without further ado, here is my discussion with Scott Horton. Well, Scott, welcome back to the Bob Murphy Show. Happy to be here, Bob. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful, man. I think... I didn't check this, but I believe you now have once again surged to the top of the most frequent guest on the Bob Murphy show. Great. So. It's an honor. <laughs> yeah. And for a while, my interviews with you were the most downloaded, but then the COVID ones overtook it because people, you know, they're more concerned about that stuff. Fair but enough. there you go. And I think that one was about Waco, which was like right, 30 years ago. So. Yes, it was. So what we're talking about today, folks, for those on the YouTube channel or version, you can see Scott's new book entitled Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. Let me ask you that this might be a goofy one right out of the shoot, but is there a reason you called the war on terrorism instead of the war on terror? 
Because yeah, I've heard you know, it I always just hate gimmicks and stuff like that. You know, and right. even right at the beginning, they started calling it 9-11. And I just call it September 11th just because it's just September 11th. You know, I don't know. I don't like going along with other people's kind of cliches and terms. I mean, of the, in all serious, that's partly why I'm bringing it up. Because it is it like a sort of an Orwellian, like the fewer syllables, you don't think about it as much. And so you realized, no, but there's a reason they're trying to call it the war on terror. Well, and so I'm going to deliberately I mean, yeah, not go I mean, along. Specifically, I, I hadn't thought about the syllables thing, but I'm sure mm-hmm. that is kind of part of it. But, you know, the war on terrorism is already kind of stupid, right? A war mm-hmm. against a tactic used by some groups at some times that may or may mm-hmm. not have anything to do with us, right? I mean, that's completely crazy. But a war on terror, this is like for elementary school kids, right? A right. war against your presumed emotional reaction to terrorism. Somehow we're going to abolish fear from the planet right. by waging war. And that's just too cartoonish to even, you know, my point was from the night of September 11th, mm-hmm. Bush declared the war on terrorism mm-hmm. and never used the word Al-Qaeda, even though they knew who did it from, mm-hmm. you know, they knew it was coming. And, uh, and then he gave a, you know, I guess it was that Friday, four days later, he gave the speech to Congress where he declared war on terrorist groups in 60 countries and whatever he wants. And again, refused to actually narrow down the target to the people who did it. It should have been the war on Al-Qaeda and it would have been over by Christmas. And instead they wanted to define it as broadly as they possibly could. And so they adopted that. But I mean, honestly, to me, just to put that on the cover of the book or something, I, I never used that phrase this whole time. I never called it the war on terror. Mm-hmm. I always called it the war on terrorism as far as that goes, just because mm-hmm. I'm not willing to adopt their jargon to such a degree. You know what I mean? Like, if I don't call mm-hmm. it the war on terrorism, you don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. Right, right, right. right. But I got to, I can't well, go that far. Let, let me just give you an stuff. analogy, because I do something similar. Um, and that's why I was asking you, because mm-hmm. I, I, I moved on, but I used to be uh with the Institute for Energy Research and a lot of stuff I did was against like Green New Deal type stuff. Mm-hmm. And so the, the the progressive types, you know, they they call it clean energy and dirty energy. And, and I refuse right. to use those terms. You know, I would just right. call it, you know, like natural gas or fossil fuels or, you know what I mean? Because right. that just loads, you know, like you already, you've left the debate when you start using those terms and it's, yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Okay, so let me start with this one. For somebody who's already got fool's errand what is different in this book? Just it's a broader yeah. uh, so, subject. I mean, I think you know this, that Fool's Errand started out as this book and then I got mm-hmm. stuck on chapter two and it just became a whole book about Afghanistan. And so in a, in a sense, not to unsell my own new book here, but mm-hmm. if, I, if you think I succeeded in debunking the case for war in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. then what possible argument could anyone have for Iraq, Libya, Syria, Yemen, and the rest of this disaster? If the war on Afghanistan, mm-hmm. if the good war, the the most justifiable out of all of these doesn't hold up at all, then how could the rest possibly it should be kind of all you need to know in a way. Mm-hmm. But this is essentially the chapter one from Fool's Aaron where it's Carter through Clinton. Mm-hmm. It's it's the same thing again, only I cut a lot out and I added a bunch of stuff. In fact, stuff that I a lot of it I'd written in the first place mm-hmm. that got cut out for the Afghanistan book about the Iranian Revolution, the Iran Iraq War, and Iraq War One. All that got mm-hmm. put back in. Okay, that's kind of yeah. chapter mm-hmm. one. Why this is all Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, George Bush, and Bill Clinton's fault? And then everything else is the war on terrorism since September 11th and the new century and the W. Bush administration. And then from there, 
I tried to do as short and sweet an Afghanistan chapter as I possibly could. And then we move on straight on to Iraq War II and then all of the rest of them. Mm -hmm. uh, Pakistan, Somalia, Libya, Syria, Iraq War III, Yemen, and then all the wars throughout Africa mm -hmm. as well. It's all in there. Okay. Well, what I like about this too is it's more like, for example, like Rothbard and For a New Liberty just gives a, you know, the, the libertarian take on a bunch of issues as opposed to like a book just on privatizing education, let's say, or right. privatizing the roads, which, you know, those could be books of them. So that's what I like that, you know, the, the first, your other book was just Afghanistan and with all the detail. And this is a more, you know, right. chapter by chapter, different, different things. For there's even a little Russia and China in there too. Yeah. Yeah. Because in fact, there's, I think you'll probably notice this if you see articles in mainstream newspapers and stuff saying, you know what, it is time to get out of Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. They almost invariably at the end say, so that we can focus on China or Russia. And right. I made a point in the book to stop and say, look, I know this book isn't about Russia and China and everything, but that is not what I'm saying. Right. And right. don't anyone take this to mean, yeah, we need to free up these resources so we can get us all killed in a nuclear war that we're starting picking fights with these countries that we defeated mm -hmm. in there or well, shook hands out of a cold war with one 50 years ago and and then just sat back and watched the cold war with the other one fall apart as as the soviet union ceased to exist 30 years ago mm -hmm, and to think mm -hmm. to think we're going to end the war on terrorism just so we can get back into that just to sell some battleships and long-range bombers but not for any other good reason is really shameful and horrible. So I made sure to put a little chapter right. in there right. just to make sure nobody gets me wrong on that, you know? Mm -hmm. So let me ask you just a few things to elaborate on. So you, and, and I wasn't even aware of this, like it doesn't surprise me, but if I understood you correctly, you were saying that like there's metrics we can look at to see is the war on terrorism working? Mm -hmm. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, maybe you can get more specifics, but were you saying like, like according to the State Department's own accounting system, that terrorist incidents around the world are higher after 9-11 than before? Absolutely. Yeah, and they're not at their peak now. I mean, the, mm. the Bush years and early Obama years, I guess, were probably the worst of it. But it's never gone back down to pre-September 11th levels. Okay, and, and, and that is interesting because I think a lot of Americans, you know, if you asked them, they would say, well, back when we were, quote, doing nothing, 9-11 happened. And then since we had, you know, the air the TSA and all the stuff we're doing overseas and that, there's not another 9-11. So there you go, Scott. They're keeping us safe. What are you talking about? Yeah. So well, I mean, on the surface, I guess that kind of looks right. But of course, they could have stopped September 11th easily if they'd been trying. And I mean, not even on the conspiratorial level of a deliberate blind eye turned or anything like that. But on the just the absolute Occam's razor explanation. The CIA, the FBI, and the NSA all absolutely hated each other and refused to share information with each other because they're all a bunch of meathead cops. They don't care about anything but themselves. And so, especially the FBI, apparently, I don't know, all of them. And so, even though they knew, and, and for that matter, you know, the neocons were insistent on, we got to go to Baghdad. If we listen to the CIA and we start going after Al-Qaeda and Osama in Afghanistan, that's a diversion from the real goal. And they're just, you know, a bunch of kooks with rifles. What are they going to do? You know, the real enemies in, in Iraq. So you had the White House also along with the police and intelligence agencies who had their problems. You had a White House that was completely disinterested in this Al-Qaeda stuff. They had their own preconceived agenda that they were just 
you know, willing to push. But so in other words, if you had just had anybody but Louis Free be the director of the FBI, they could have never gotten away with that in the first place. You didn't need a Patriot Act. You didn't need a war on terrorism. And look at a map. We got two gigantic oceans and two friendly neighbors that'll do whatever our government says. And all over the world now, the security that's kept Al-Qaeda terrorists or any, you know, copycats like them from coming into the country. I mean, there, there are people who are already here who have done attacks, who have been like won over. Mm-hmm. But as far as like real Al-Qaeda guys, like the guys that did the September 11th attack getting into the country, what's kept them out is all the other governments in the world keeping those people off of airplanes headed toward North America. It's the other countries in the world that our country relies on to enforce that security. Same thing for inspecting shipments leaving their ports to come toward ours. We don't have to do all every full inspection of every little thing because we know that we can rely on our partner governments around the world to keep stuff like that from getting loaded, you know, explosives or whatever, Mm -hmm. from getting loaded on boats in the first place or, you know, the best of their ability anyway. And so, you know, the correlation there falls apart. And then, of course, also, and this is the point of chapter one there, is that the war on terrorism is the halfway point here. It's the American project of dominance around the world, and in this case, especially in the Middle East, that has caused the terrorist attacks against us. Then, of course, they pretend like September 11th or whichever terrorist attack is the first day in history. Mm -hmm. And now we have to retaliate and begin to defend ourselves. Mm -hmm. And never mind the fact that we had a policy of dominance in the Middle East going back 20 years before the attack or 30 years before the attack. Now all we're doing, we're fighting terrorism. That's what we're doing over there. We're fighting terrorism. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, as you read the book, you realize that that's really not right. And the first thing they did was let Osama escape and go after the Taliban that didn't do it. And then they went after Saddam Hussein, who didn't do it. And then they went after the Somalis in, in, you know, the Islamic Courts Union in Somalia that didn't have anything to do with it. And then, you know, supposedly, and I talk about this in the book, supposedly there were three Al-Qaeda guys wanted for questioning by the FBI in Somalia. According to the Washington Post, that was the casus belli for starting that war in 2006. Three guys, because see, remember when they bombed the Africa embassies, in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, Nairobi, Kenya, 98, that was still a job for the Justice Department. So it was the FBI, not the CIA and the military. It was FBI who went overseas to investigate these things and indict these guys and hold them responsible as criminals, which is the proper thing to do, by the way. Mm-hmm. Terrorism is against the law. It's not a necessarily, I mean, you could say September 11th is an act of war once it gets that large, but still the people responsible are individuals, not governments. Mm-hmm. So you just prosecute them is all you need to do. Um, But uh, anyway, these guys, they were wanted for questioning from the pre-September 11th era. They were just suspects, three men. And that was what the Bush government told the Washington Post was their excuse for starting a war against them in 2006. And then, you know, on throughout, I mean, what they've done in in Libya, Muammar Gaddafi was the first guy who put out an Interpol warrant for Osama bin Laden in 1996. Um, you know, Bashar al-Assad helped George Bush, Bill Clinton, and then George Bush torture and murder al-Qaeda guys. Uh, famously, Bob Baer, the former CIA officer, said, if you want a terrorist suspect interrogated, you send him to Jordan. If you want them tortured, you send him to Syria. And if you want him to disappear forever, you send him to Egypt. And that was, you know, going from the, from the late Clinton years, the rendition program began before George W. Bush. And then famously, Bashar al-Assad tortured these guys for W. Bush, including an innocent Canadian named Mar Arar. 
And so to think that somehow the war on terrorism includes wars against all these secular, if not atheist dictators like Saddam, Gaddafi and, and you know, Muammar Gaddafi and Bashar al-Assad is completely crazy, right? It's a bait and switch. The whole thing is essentially a hoax. Mm-hmm. You know, we got you good and upset. And so now we're going to exploit that. And which this is one of the common themes in the, throughout the book, too, is that this is what bin Laden was counting on. Bin Laden didn't think that he would scare us away. Bin Laden was trying to bait George Bush into overexpansion. The same thing that we used the Mujahideen to do to the Soviet Union in the 1980s in, the, in Afghanistan. Then, Yeah, let me stop you there because that, that is something I specifically wanted to focus on. So, because um, that's really a fascinating piece of this. So here I'm reading, this is from page 12 of your book. Um, This Vietnam trap bin Laden was planning for the United States was not so original a concept. In fact, it is how Osama bin Laden ended up in Afghanistan in the first place. President Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, the big new Brzezinski, boasted that when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan on December 24th, 79, he sent a memo to the boss, meaning, you know, Carter at the time, we now have the opportunity of giving to the USSR its Vietnam War. So the, when bin Laden was there in Af- you know so so originally bin laden was our buddy and kind of so it's kinda. like this go mm-hmm. back to the 70s vietnam was a disaster right so the american people had what's called the vietnam syndrome which meant they already lost one boy over there and they weren't going to give up their second one and so they didn't want they were there was a it was interpreted broadly as a reluctance to engage in the cold war with the soviet union by fighting any kind of these proxy wars at all mm-hmm. so so Big Brzezinski and Walter Slocum and these other guys in the Carter administration thought, you know what we could do is instead of containing communism, let's bait them into overexpansion. If Vietnam was so bad for us and we wish we really hadn't done it and it's, you know, inflicted this mental illness on the American people that they don't want to fight the Russians anymore or the communists anymore. Well, let's do that to them. Mm-hmm. Let's bait them and give them their own Vietnam War. And as um, Zalmay Khalilzad later wrote in the Washington Post, man, they never thought they're going to bring down the Soviet Union. In fact, they didn't even really think that they would defeat the communists in Afghanistan. They were just trying to cost the Soviets something, right, to give Mm -hmm. them their own Vietnam. Vietnam didn't bring down the United States of America either. It was just a really bad blow, right, a really hard Mm -hmm. punch in the stomach that self-inflicted basically that we never should have done so they said so let's do that to them it'll be really smart and so they started pouring money into pakistan to fund the afghan mujahideen but also of course this is all in cooperation with the saudis and this is not in the book because you can only go back so far on so many of these things but sure after the after the church committee hearings and the rockefeller committee hearings and the kind of post nixon cia reforms which were limited but they were you know of some import, the CIA basically just went to the Saudis and said, we're just going to have you guys finance all of our stuff now. And they created what was called the Safari Club, which was basically a group of American and Saudi intelligence officers working together with regional countries, mostly on coups in Africa. And But this was basically kind of the foreground and BCCI was the bank that they all used to finance all this stuff. And then, so this was kind of the foreground to then, okay, now we're going on to Afghanistan. And so with the Saudis involved, that means then that we're not just talking about bankrolling the Afghan Mujahideen. We're talking about recruiting crazies from wherever we can find them all across the Middle East. And as far as, you know, Central Asia, you know, the, the stands, 
the Philippines and Indonesia and even the United States of America, Muslims from all over went to Afghanistan to go and fight in the war. And the CIA and, and basically was matching funds between the Americans and the Saudis, and then they're all funneling it through the Pakistanis. And importantly, the primary recipient of American aid through Pakistan was a guy named Gubaldine Hekmatyar, who is a war criminal who skinned his enemies alive. And it was just, the, he was later known as the butcher of Kabul because after the war, he just shelled the capital city and killed like 50,000 people when he couldn't take it over. And he's still a problem there to this day. He was the leader of Hizbi Islami that had resisted America from 2005 through 16 and killed hundreds of American soldiers. He was one of the guys that they had backed back then. And it was his corruption that led to the rise, uh, in part, that led to the rise of the Taliban to instill law and order in the mid-1990s over the lawlessness of the guys who had been the American-backed Mujahideen. But then, so Osama bin Laden was there as early, apparently, as early as 1979, from the very beginning, mm -hmm. when as soon as the Soviets invaded, or, or maybe 1980, as soon as the Soviets invaded or before, um, he was there. And this is... You know, part of the reason, Bob, I think people are 9-11 conspiracy truthers, especially back then, was because Bush was blaming the attack on the Taliban. And he was conflating Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. That just didn't make sense to people. That mm -hmm. a bunch of illiterate cavemen hillbillies from the far side of Pashtunistan could come and knock our towers down like that. Mm -hmm. But it ain't like that, right? These guys were sophisticated Arabs. They weren't the Taliban. They weren't Afghans. They were Saudis and Egyptians. Bin Laden essentially what Halliburton is, like the most, one of the most powerful or like Bechtel group that do these massive engineering and construction projects for governments in the United States. Mm -hmm. That's what the Bin Laden group is in Saudi Arabia. They basically redid the whole cities of Mecca and Medina and all of the Dome of the Rock and all, or not the Dome of the Rock, the whatever, where the, in Mecca where they all go and, and uh, walk around the, the big square rectangular stone and all that stuff. They had gotten the contract to do all of that. And, and, you know, oil, you know, working with oil services and all of this. So they're billionaires. Osama bin Laden was like the eighth son or whatever, but he still had hundreds of millions of dollars of his own fortune and a degree in engineering. And, you know, so he brought um, all his construction equipment and, and helped to build roads and hideouts and forts in the mountains and all of these things. And according to Michael Shoyer, the former uh, chief of the CIA's bin Laden unit, he was wounded three times in battle slept on the floor of the cave in the dirt like everybody else and had, you know, was considered a real OG, you know, credible leader among those guys had, had mm. earned their respect in a real way then. And I don't know, I honestly have never seen anything to make me believe that Bin Laden himself worked for the CIA. There's one piece of paper that goes around that says, yeah, they brought him to the United States and his code name was Tim Osmond and all this. I've never seen that really concretely verified. I don't mm -hmm. necessarily think that's right. I think it is proven that his partner and the current leader of Al Qaeda, Ayman al Zawahiri, came to the country, uh, uh, to the United States, to help raise money. And um, the blind Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman, who his crew bombed the World Trade Center in '93, the reason that the CIA intervened with the State Department to let these guys into the country in the first place was because they're our friends from Afghanistan. We know these guys. It's fine. Let them in. And then they were living in New York and almost succeeded knocking one tower over into the other. So um, the point being that the Americans backed these, essentially this overall war on one hand to give the Soviets their own Vietnam. So there's important mm -hmm. lessons there about imperial overextension and all of that. Um, but on the other hand, then 
they gave birth, as you're saying, to the rise of this internationalist Islamist insurgency against all imperialist powers, including the United States. So, but what's interesting is the rhetorically what you're doing there in that that part of the book is because you're you had just told the reader far from thinking that bin laden's plan with 9-11 was oh we're gonna you know these americans are weak they're not really up for the battle like we are so if we just do something shocking like this they'll turn tail and run right and leave the middle east you're saying no no that's not what the point was the point was to get the americans to do what they in fact did and it's not a crazy theory on his part, and you can't poo-poo and say, oh, come on, that, that doesn't make sense, because that was the theory that U.S. intelligence officials were using when it was the Soviets going into That's Afghanistan. Right. So you, you can't dismiss that theory as being yeah. nutty, the idea that you can— And we're doing it to ourselves again. I right. mean, if, if tricking the Soviets into invading Afghanistan is a good way to hurt the Soviets, well, what does it mean when we invade Afghanistan and do the same thing as them? Right. And right. in fact— you know, they recognize this early on. They're like, oh, you see what bin Laden's trying to do is he's trying to get us bogged down and bleed to bankruptcy. And this played into the Rumsfeldian argument that no, 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 we want to be light, fast special operations forces and air power, kill whoever we want to kill and then go. We don't want to get bogged down. And he would invoke this truth as part of his argument. They want to bog mm -hmm. us down. But the State Department and the rest were like, nah, we got to change the regime and redo the whole country. And they, you know, of course, they wanted to keep they wanted to define the enemy as broadly as they could. But as far as the motive of the attack itself, well, the strategy behind the attack, first of all, the motive mm -hmm. was American intervention in the Middle East, mm -hmm. especially bases in Saudi to uh, blockade and bomb Iraq after Iraq War One, all through the 1990s, and of course, support for Israel in uh, Palestine and Lebanon. And we can elaborate about that if you want. But the strategy was exactly as you say, a provocation is equivalent, you know, guys in the neighborhood, as somebody runs up, open hand slaps you in the face as hard as they can and take off running. Mm -hmm. But they got eight of their boys hanging around the corner waiting to jump you, you know, is basically what it is. And so that was what it was, a provocation. And what's funny is all the hawks fell for it. Right. And honestly, so like you could read, jo I think, well, I don't know. I don't know if Jonah Goldberg ever wrote anything honest, but you could read Jonah Goldberg in the National Review saying, see, they think they can scare us away. And that means now we have to go big to prove that they can never scare us away. We're going, we're right. damn forever. He's just a puppet on Osama's string. He's doing exactly what bin Laden wanted him to do. And, mm -hmm. and this is absolute, you know, indis indisputable fact. All through the 1990s, he said over and over again that was what he was trying to do. Right. In his speech in 2004, his reelect George W. Bush speech, he said, all I have to do is take a flag upon which it is written Al-Qaeda and send it to the furthest point east, and you'll send all your generals and all your billions of dollars racing to chase them, and, and, and there's no benefit for your country except for the politically connected corrupt interests that serve your government and the rest of everyone else in your country loses. As simple as that, and I quote in both books, his son Omar, it's Hamza who's the terrorist. Omar is a decent guy. Uh, he was in 2010 when bin Laden was still alive, a year before he was killed, uh, he met with a Rolling Stone reporter named Guy Lawson in Damascus. And they you know, sat there and did a whole profile of him. And he talked all about how, in the most frank terms, and he couldn't possibly be making this up, Bob. I mean, this is just horse's mouth stuff. This is Bin Laden's boy is saying, listen, my dad, all he ever wanted was to get America to invade Afghanistan, right? Which is, mm -hmm. he wanted us to leave the Middle East entirely, but he wanted us to invade as a means to that end. 
we're going to force you out the long way and the hard way, the way that we did to the Soviets with your help before. And so he said in the summer and or in the fall and winter of 2000, Osama bin Laden was rooting for George W. Bush because he saw in Bush the perfect mark, right? This fake tough guy, pretend Texan from Connecticut, you know, who likes to act all macho and, and is completely tied in with all these corrupt corporations. And which, again, bin Laden was no dummy. He was a bin Laden, which means he knows all about the Texas oil business. Mm -hmm. And he knows all about the Texas oil business's involvement in Saudi Arabia. And he knows exactly who these Texas Republicans are and what kind of advantage they're going to try to take. And he's just licking his chops. He saw George Bush as a perfect mark to manipulate to do exactly what he wanted to do. And then uh, Omar says, listen, in Clinton's time, and I'm not apologizing for Clinton here, but it's just the way he phrases it. He goes, look, in Clinton's time, America was very smart. You know, he shot a few cruise missiles at my father's training camp and didn't get him. But you know what? Now you've invaded Afghanistan. You've been here for 10 years and you still don't have my father. He's still on the run. Better you would have saved that money for your economy instead of acting like the bull who runs after the red scarf. Mm -hmm. As simple as that. I mean, his dad taught him that stuff, right? He doesn't know this from any other source other than Osama bin Laden explained to him that this is what we're trying to do. And then he said, you know what? Good luck, dad. I don't want anything to do with this stuff. You guys are going to get killed and I'm getting the hell out. And he left mm -hmm. the summer of 2000 or, or pardon me, in late 2000, I guess. Or well, I have to go back and look. Maybe it was summer 2001 before the attack. Mm -hmm. I think that was what it was. He stayed all the way through you know, the months just leading up to the attack is when he left. And so there you go. And they did end up killing his dad a year later. Oh, where he was hiding in Pakistan under the protection of the Pakistani intelligence and the funding of the Saudis, our allies. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let me, I, I want to spend some more time on this because it's, you had, I, I don't know if I've ever read this. So early on, you talk about this is from Osama bin Laden's 1998 Declaration of War Against Jews and Crusaders. So you probably wouldn't get that published as a letter to the editor of the New York Times with that <laughs> title. But let me just read this. and Because it, it is, like you say, it's rarely do we, you know, it, what Americans even encounter, like what, what's, what's this guy's motivation besides just we're minding our own business and he just comes along and hates freedom apparently and bicameral legislatures. Okay, so this is from his 98 Declaration. I'll just read some of this. First, for over seven years, the United States has been occupying the lands of Islam in the holiest of places, the Arabian Peninsula, plundering its riches, dictating to its rulers, humiliating its people, terrorizing its neighbors, turning its bases in the peninsula into a spearhead through which to fight the neighboring Muslim peoples. Okay, da, 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 da. The best proof of this is the Americans' continuing aggression against the Iraqi people using the peninsula as a staging post, even though all its rulers are against their territories being used to that end, but they are helpless. Let me skip the middle paragraph on this third one you've quoted here. Third, so this is the third reason, if the Americans' aims behind these wars are religious and economic, the aim is also to serve the Jews' petty state and divert attention from its occupation of Jerusalem and murder of Muslims there. The best proof of this is their eagerness to destroy Iraq, the strongest neighboring Arab state, and their endeavor to fragment all the states of the region, such as Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Sudan, into paper statelets, and through their disunion and weakness to guarantee Israel's survival and the continuation of the brutal crusade occupation of the peninsula. So there, his official list of reasons, he didn't say these Americans with their blue jeans and, you know, women without appropriate dress and freedom, that just annoys me and that's why we're going to go kill them. That's right. You know, he listed very specific things. So, you know, can you elaborate on that? 
Yeah. And look, to be very clear, because I know people like to misunderstand these things and people like to assume motives and whatever. I'm from Texas, okay? None of this has anything to do with explaining why these guys are right or to justify or apologize or excuse their actions. Mm -hmm. I'm just Howard Cosell calling the score here, right? This Mm -hmm. is the truth. The reason that they came to the United States to kill Americans is because Americans had been over there killing them. Mm -hmm. That's how it is. And if you think about how you felt after September 11th, boy, I remember even, and I knew better than all these guys, and I was predicted the attack, and I was more of a kook then. I thought they must have definitely let it happen on purpose and all this. But I remember Ben Sargent, the great uh, political cartoonist in the Austin American Statesman, had a cartoon of Uncle Sam carrying a dead woman's body in the smoke. See, it even gets me now. And Uncle Sam's like, oh, look on his face. And I remember being like, yeah, no, 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 no. Ain't going to work on me. But yes, I do feel that way. Okay. Right. Like go and get them for me. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, guess what? That's how Arabs feel when you murder their moms and dads too. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine that they're just human beings? Mm -hmm. And, and look, you know, think about it when someone that you love dies, how horrible that is. Okay. Now somebody murdered them with a giant bomb and tore their body apart. That's pretty bad, man. Mm -hmm. People react to stuff like that. As Ron Paul said to Rudy Giuliani in 2007, if you think we just go around the world doing whatever we want with no consequences, then you do that at our own peril. You're putting the American people in danger, acting like you can just get away with murder because you can't, that's it. It doesn't mean bin Laden was a good man. Bin Laden had the exact same moral standard as Madeleine Albright and George W. Bush, which is if I got to kill some civilians, I don't give a damn. Business is business. The mission is the mission. So that makes them all equally evil, you know, butchers of innocent civilians. And so there's no justification here, but there's no question about the motive whatsoever. They didn't hate us for our freedom. That never had anything to do with it. It's the most ridiculous red herring in the world. Why would they care about that? Yeah, did you know, Bob, that in America, a land of about 330, 340 million people, something like that, um, there's about 3 million Muslims. And there's never been a pogrom against them ever. And there's their uh, mosques are, are on the same city block right there with synagogue and a Protestant and a Catholic church and nobody cares and everybody's friends and everyone does business with each other. And Muslims of all descriptions are allowed to worship in peace in America, just like everybody else. Oh, doesn't that make Osama mad to know how free Muslims are in America? (laughs) That the Christians don't round them up and kill them? I mean, John Ashcroft rounded up a few thousand under a material witness excuse after September 11th. That lasts like a year and a half or two. That's the worst anti-Muslim pogrom that's ever happened in this country. And they weren't killed, you know, but it wasn't the townspeople with torches. That's never happened in this country ever, ever. Why would that be their motive to hate us and kill us? That we're so free that the Muslim super duper minority enjoys the absolute protections of the average white Anglo-Saxon Protestant to worship the way he feels like and go about his business in this land. Give me a break. The thing is, they were lying about that. George W. Bush couldn't get up there and say, this is all my father's fault. 
because first he backed the Mujahideen when he was the vice president under Ronald Reagan, and then he stabbed them in the back when he left his troops occupying the bases in Saudi Arabia. And this is all my stepbrother, Bill Clinton's fault, who got adopted into the family, which after all, they were cocaine dealers in the 1980s together, George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton. And so it wasn't too big of a stretch that as soon as Clinton beat Bush, Bush Sr. adopted him into the family and made him a stepbrother and took him golfing all the time and all of this and became so close to them. George W. Bush wasn't gonna get up there and say that this is my people's fault for getting us into this mess. And sorry, I've been on, the, I've been on watch for eight months now and I haven't begun to do my job yet. Mm-hmm. So instead I'll just pretend the devil did it. And he did it cause he's a nihilist and cause he's evil and cause he hates you and your mom. And in fact, the more you love your mom, the more he hates you, man. And that's why, boy, oh boy, you better give us one of your sons so we can go and fight them over there so that they don't have to fight them over here. And they're just lying from the very beginning. They knew just as well as anybody who was interested in this topic previously knew that Al-Qaeda was a few hundred men, a few hundred men. Mm. You could have sent only the Rangers, right? You could have sent second tier special operations forces alone, push them out of a plane with a parachute. Let us know when you're done killing the 400 Arabs hiding in Nangar province. The whole thing would have been over by... Christmas, but instead, again, they defined the, they they did just what Osama bin Laden wanted. They took the mm-hmm. the scale of the attack of the the devastation of September 11th, which was essentially comparable to Pearl Harbor, right? Only directly targeted at civilians for the most part, um, and then they use that to pretend that there's essentially this Islamist terrorist Japanese-sized empire out there to fight. When in fact mm-hmm. it. There was no such thing. These guys didn't control so much as a city block. You know, they were, mm. Bin Laden had a farm on the outskirts of Kandahar City where he lived. And then his, their hideout was in the Tora Bora Mountains. They had no power at all. They had to steal our planes to crash into our targets. And they had to recruit mm. Egyptian engineering students studying in Hamburg, Germany to do it. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to even reach out and touch us at all. Right. So let me... Let me, uh, there was two elements of that manifesto or whatever that is that I, I just read and I want to focus. So what the first thing is, he says, again, he said the best, well, if some people have in the past argued about the fact of the occupation, U.S. occupation of the Arabian Peninsula, all the people of the peninsula have now acknowledged it. The best proof of this is the Americans continuing aggression against the Iraqi people using the peninsula as a staging post. And this is the part I really liked, even though all its rulers are against their territories being used to that end. And I got the sense that you endorse that. So in other words, even though on paper, and if you ask, you know, the Clinton administration and the Bush administration officials, like, oh, the fact that we're using certain air bases and stuff over there to do things, those countries must be okay with it. They're cool with it. That he's saying, no, actually, that's that's not the case. So Well, he he was essentially exiled from Saudi Arabia for denouncing Mm -hmm. King Fahd for going along with this. So... Mm -hmm. You know, whether King Fahd was just like, hey, whatever you say, Americans, or whether he really felt pressured that he had no choice, I think the more cynical take there would be that bin Laden is trying to give the king credit that he's actually not due mm-hmm. and say that, like, listen, man, you're, this isn't your fault, right? You don't want this. You're being held hostage by these guys, just like we all are, and that kind of thing. But if you look at the kings of Arabia and the, um, uh, Fahd and Abdullah and now Salman, these kings of Saudi are as corrupt as a human man could be. They always have been. And the same thing for the guys in uh, Qatar and Bahrain and in the United Arab Emirates. And these, I don't know, 
they're just essentially, uh, I don't know that they're sock puppet dictators, but they're the kinds of guys that the Americans get along with just fine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I did ask, you might get to the point in the book where you ask, man, man, God dang, these Saudis have so much sway and why? And it's something you and I've talked about in the past where I'm questioning you about the role of the petrodollar and, right. and Saudi denominating mm-hmm. all their oil in American dollars. And I'm just like, boy, I don't know. The murder we let them get away with, I don't think that that is a good enough explanation. So, but I was ranting this rant at Gareth Porter the other day on my show back a couple of weeks ago. And I'm like rattling off whatever I can think of. And then one of the things that I named, of course, was that the Saudis have eminent sway and control essentially over the king of Bahrain. And Mm -hmm. Bahrain hosts the Navy's fifth fleet. And so the Saudis could put an end to that situation or make that very difficult for us very quickly. And so it's the self-licking ice cream cone of American military policy, where now that the fifth fleet is based at Bahrain, it has to be, and we could never give that up. And if the Saudis can blackmail us by hinting that they might get us kicked out of there, then boy, we better do whatever they say. And it just, it's the kind of thing that makes no sense from the point of view of American national interest, but does make sense from the point of view of the national security bureaucracy and what they prioritize. And after all, why do we need those bases? So we fight terrorists? who are fighting us because we have bases in their countries, right? In the first place. Mm -hmm. And terrorists that are backed by these same royals because in many cases, yeah, they do hate us and resent us, right? Like it's some percentage of the Saudi royal family has backed Al-Qaeda this whole time, you know? Whether because the Westerners like it that way or whether it's because they truly resent us and want to see us go as well. Yeah, I do want to delve into that. Let me... Before we leave this, and let's bin get Laden back to Israel Palestine because there's a lot there and yeah. we should discuss that. But go ahead. Yeah, well, that's where I wanted to go through because okay. there was a, a little line here, and, and you because you elaborated too, and you you take this argument on, especially like a neoconservative type here, you know, hearing me read this stuff and be like, you fools, you just read. He said that the best proof of this is there the Americans' eagerness to destroy Iraq, the strongest neighbor, da 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 da. And they want to turn Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Sudan into paper statelets and through their disunion and weakness to guarantee Israel's survival. And so wouldn't, you know, and all the Southern evangelical preachers say, there you guys have it. And Saddam bin Laden's goal was to destroy Israel. And he's no, America is the only nation through its foreign policy that's guaranteeing the security of the Israeli people and their, just their existence and so that's partly why we're doing all this. So what, you know, you, you guys are okay with Israel just getting steamrolled, you know, into oblivion. Yeah. So how do you respond to that? Again, bin Laden had a farm outside of Kandahar City in a cave mm-hmm. in the Tora Bora Mountains, right? He had no power and influence to do any such thing. He had 400 men. Mm-hmm. The entire project was to, how do we get, how do we defeat the Americans and achieve all the rest of our goals too? And the answer is we get the Americans to turn the region upside down for us, right? Mm-hmm. And so that was why, um, you know, bin Laden denounced Saddam Hussein as the socialist infidel. And um, it's why the former chief of the CIA, bin Laden unit, said that when we invaded Iraq, that was the hoped for but unexpected gift to bin Laden. All he wanted was for us to invade Afghanistan. Now you're going to knock off Saddam for me too? And turn, you know, all Mesopotamia into a raging sectarian wildfire and all of this stuff. Radicalize the whole region in terms of politics and religion and anti-Americanism and everything else. Discredit all of our sock puppet dictators. 
you know, I quote um, John Miller, I'll get back to Israel specifically in a second, but mm -hmm. I quote John Miller from ABC News who interviewed bin Laden in 98. And he later told Peter Bergen, who had also interviewed bin Laden, the CNN reporter, that he said, when bin Laden told me that, yeah, 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 we're going to war against the United States of America and all of this, he says, I just laughed to myself. They're like, yeah, you and what army, pal? Mm -hmm. But then the joke was, it's the American army. That's what army. That's what he's going to use to destroy America. He's going to get the USA to do the same stupid thing the USSR did, which was overextend itself, you know, and and bring itself down, make itself mm -hmm. so weak that it can no longer, um, uh, you know, stand in the way of their goals. How are they supposed to wage a revolution in Saudi when, first of all, they only got 400 men? And second of all, the Saudis are backed by the Americans. How are they supposed mm -hmm. to create a caliphate in Western Iraq when Saddam Hussein is there and when the Americans will come and bomb it right off the face of the earth if they try it? So we got to get rid of the Americans first by bogging them down, bleeding them to bankruptcy and forcing them out. Only then can we have our way. But just think about what was the status quo in 2001? The guy had a farm in the outskirts of Kandahar and a cave in Tora Bora. You look at the map of the rest of the region, it's all carved up by nation states, these violent monopolies on force that you know uh, us libertarians are always denouncing. Where are you gonna put your caliphate? How in the world is somebody like bin Laden or Zawahiri supposed to wage a successful revolution in any of these countries in the year 2001 or two or three? There's no way possibly could. Now there are more of these guys than ever before. And they are you know, truly dangerous to some. And you know, the ultimate culmination of it, of course, is the Islamic State Caliphate that was created in Eastern Syria and Western Iraq, which we'll get to you know, later in the discussion, I'm sure. But this is like bin Laden's craziest dream come true. That guy Baghdadi up there on the balcony declaring the caliphate, that might as well have been bin Laden himself declaring ultimate victory over the United States of America, at least for a little while mm -hmm. before they came and actually proved bin Laden right, that you can't create your caliphate until the Americans are really gone or else they'll just come back and bomb it, you know, all the, uh, mm -hmm. bomb it off the face of the earth again. But now as far as what he characterizes as the Zionist motivations behind American foreign policy in the region, much of that is correct. And I think it's almost certain that in that, that statement that you cite there, that he's referring to either one, the Oded Yanan plan from 1981, or possibly even just the clean break strategy by, um, that was written by David Wormser and Richard Pearl and Douglas Fife, really Wormser and Pearl, I think were the ringleaders in 1996. And so the Oded plan is crazy. Like you should read it. It's actually kind of funny because it's written in 1981 and it's this Israeli strategist saying, oh my God, the free world's dead. The Soviet Union's gonna take over the whole world. All of mankind is going to be enslaved in totalitarian communism and so, um, Israel is going to, you know, end up divorced from all of our European and American allies and will be helpless. And so what we have to do is we have to wage this campaign. I mean, it's completely paranoid, crazy. When you read like the, the premise mm -hmm. of the thing, it's like, God, this guy's a madman. And then, so what we have to do is we have to smash all of the Arab states into as many tiny pieces as we possibly can, reduce them all to warring tribes so that they're essentially a bunch of kooks waving AK-47s in the air out in the desert somewhere and unable to really organize as an effective state army that could oppose them in any way and to guarantee Israeli regional hegemony. It's all in there. Now, the clean break strategy, in a clean break and coping with crumbling states, you can find somewhat kind of oblique sort of references in there to like- So well, hang on, this was something written by Clinton administration officials? The, the clean no, no, no. Break so strategy? Is, uh, good question, good question. No, these are 
the the neoconservatives out of power during the Clinton okay. years, uh, okay. sitting at this their is like, think like tank, people in a think tank or something. Future. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, so the clean break strategy was actually written for Benjamin Netanyahu when he was coming in to be the prime minister of Israel for the first time in 1996. Mm-hmm. And part of it is essentially an argument for neoliberalism. We're too socialist. We need to get rid of all these uh, socialist programs and you know revitalize the economy and that kind of stuff that mm-hmm. you and I could like half agree with, right? Conservative right, right. economics in the place of socialist ones, mm-hmm. but not really libertarian stuff. But right. anyway, um, but makes sense from their point of view, right? These are reformed leftists who'd become Reaganites. Um, and so then essentially it's like this. And everybody, if this, if you start getting lost, pull up a map and look at what we're talking about here, okay? The Israelis' concern by this time is, and there's a huge backstory here, but anyway, at this time, they decide they're obsessed with Iran and Shiite power. And so if you look at the map, the Iranian alliance system, such as it is, is a fairly weak one, but it's Iran, and then it's Bashar al-Assad, the dictator of uh, Damascus, Syria, and then Hezbollah in southern Lebanon which is you know, started out as a, as a militia, essentially in resistance to the Israeli occupation in the 1980s, and yes, used terrorist tactics against them, um, but is now sort of a mini Shiite state, but is in a coalition with the ruling Christian parties and is part of the official democratic government of Lebanon, which is recognized and respected by the US. And they really are much more of, you know, just like with the IRA and Sinn Féin, or whatever, like they really are much more of a political party and and you know social welfare faction in many state than just an armed militia or terrorist group, despite their reputation. Mm. That's not really to argue for them, but just to be realistic about what they are there. Um, and so, but the Israelis' problem is right that Iran can arm and through Syria, especially, can arm and and finance and improve Hezbollah's situation compared to Israel, for example, arming them up with missiles and this kind of thing. So they want to break this whole thing where Hezbollah essentially is acts as sort of the 51st state of Iran over here. And so then nonsensically, you read this and you scratch your head, man, these guys are kind of stupid. So they say, here's what we want to do, man. The problem is Iran, and I'll do this stage left and right, whatever. Iran is backing Hezbollah through Syria. So what we want to do, we want to get rid of Saddam Hussein in Iraq. But Saddam Hussein's a Sunni and a Baathist. And and he's a Baathist like the Baathists in Syria, but he's enemies of the Syrian Baathists, you know? Um, and he's a secularist. He's the roadblock. If there's anything, you know, preventing Iranian Shiite power from having whatever they want in Syria and, and uh, Lebanon, it's Saddam Hussein's Iraq. Mm-hmm. But these guys have this completely ridiculous scheme where here's what we're going to do. We'll get rid of Saddam Hussein. They're not really calling for war. They're calling for some kind of coup or regime change or CIA right. plot or something. But what we'll do is we'll get rid of him. And this is still the same motive for the war later. Don't get me wrong. Um, what we'll do, we'll remove him and then we'll bring in the king of Jordan will come in. And the king of Jordan will, uh, he, since he's a Hashemite king, everyone in Iraq will just accept it. It'll be fine. The Sunnis, they'll love it. And the Shiites, I know you're thinking, yeah, but why would the Shiites respect, oh, sorry, the Shiite supermajority population of the country, the Shiite Arabs, why, why would they respect the authority of a Hashemite king? And Wormser says, oh, don't worry. You know, the Shiites, they, uh, uh, well, because the Hashemites are supposedly descended from the prophet Muhammad and his family line, the Shiites will just bend over and do whatever they're told. 
Well, it's just totally stupid, right? Because mm-hmm. the Shiites do venerate the family of the prophet Muhammad, but a whole different line of the family. They went off with, I think it's the son-in-law Ali and whatever, and they all went east into Iran and all of this stuff. The Hashemite line, which was, um, I don't know the whole prehistory going back, but was essentially, you know, suckered and used by the British Empire to rule Jordan and Iraq for them in the last century. Um, They have no sway over the Shiites whatsoever. And even if they were the right kind of Ayatollah or, or, you know, religious leadership and, and the right bloodline, that in no way would inspire this sort of slavish devotion that Wormser had been led to believe uh, would have been the fact by, guess who, you'll be familiar with this, I know you know, Bob, Ahmed Chalabi, the leader of the Iraqi exiles, whose mission Mm -hmm. it was to get the United States to force this regime change. So he was blowing all this smoke up these neocons rear ends about how easily this is going to work. And then, oh, and then here's how it was supposed to work. Once we have a Hashemite king in Baghdad, then he'll be able to tell the Shiite clergy in Najaf, who again will obey him because they'll do whatever they're told. And these are the most prominent Shiite leaders in the world. And then they will order Hezbollah to stop being friends with Iran and to do what they say instead. And then they'll all become friends with Israel and build a water and oil pipeline to Haifa and everything will be great. And this will somehow you know, foil Iran's regional ambitions. Now, when they finally put this in practice, of course, it didn't work at all. All they did was empower Iran, had, you know, the most sway of any foreign state over the Iraqi Shia. And now there's nobody standing in the way of this Mm so-called Shiite alliance. Now Saddam Hussein is gone. And so they have, as the neocon hawks call it now, Bob, a land bridge, you know, a road that goes from Tehran through Iraq, you know, through Baghdad, through Damascus and on to Beirut. You know, it's essentially one highway system straight through with no Sunni Iraqi Baathists to block it. So the these neocons had this harebrained scheme for how all of this was supposed to work. And it did not. But anyway, uh, when he says, when bin Laden is talking about this stuff, I think he's referring directly to the clean break there. That look at mm-hmm. this Israeli-centric plan to split Iraq up, to dominate it in this way, the most powerful Arab state. And I forget the exact quotes now, but it's um, certainly in the sequel, Coping with Crumbling States, Wormser says, and then what we want to do, we want to expedite the chaotic collapse to Syria so that then we can you know, take, car- take charge and, and control the results of what happens there. Um, and then it, somewhere in there are quotes. There's a couple of very like, kind of uh, uh, little ones about, yeah, and you know, if it doesn't work out and they all just kind of fall apart, then that would be okay too. You know, along right, more right. along the lines of that Oded Yanan plan of just make them all fractured and weak. Mm-hmm. And, it, and so if we can't have it exactly our way, but everything just kind of falls apart instead, then that would also be acceptable, you know. Folks, let's take a break from the discussion to remember that Nobel laureate economist who has a column with the New York Times That's right. It's our good friend, Paul Krugman. Believe it or not, Krugman has not reformed his ways. Arguably, he's become worse since Tom Woods and I discontinued our famous podcast, Critiquing Krugman, first weekly and then biweekly. But you know what? You can still recapture some of that zeal for truth and skewering that you came to love when you listened to the podcast if you go get the book, Contra Krugman. 
And to be clear, it's not a transcript of those episodes. These are columns that I wrote over many years critiquing Krugman. And there's a whole list of different subject areas. It's not just Keynesian economics. It's also climate change. All sorts of stuff is in this book. In fact, when I read the initial manuscript, you know, looking for typos and stuff like that, when I was done, I, I just thought, you know, should we just hang up the show here? Because what more needs to be said? I almost felt bad for him. It was, it was pretty brutal. And uh, at this point, we have stopped the show. So maybe it was prophetic. To get your hands on this book, go to ContraKrugmanBook.com. I think you're going to like it. Okay, so that's, you know, you're giving us the good context there of that's what Osama bin Laden's not inventing imaginary threats when he's saying the U.S.'s aim is to shatter all these other regions. And by the way, regimes. when you read that, you can tell this is not a hillbilly from the backwoods of Afghanistan, right. is it? Right, yeah. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, he all. understands international geopolitics and whatnot. So, but then I like, to, what you also did though is still from just reading his essay there or whatever that was, declaration, you might think, oh, bin Laden's goal is ultimately destruction of Israel. So push comes to shove. I think Israel should survive. And so therefore we got to do all now, this that's stuff. That's a good right? point. And that's true. And he, and he never said, oh, I'd settle for a two-state solution or what, you know, he mm. always denounced the very existence of Israel. Mm. But the question is really, what was he ever going to do about it? And the answer is nothing, right? The guy was essentially powerless. Again, he had to hijack our Boeings to even have something to crash into something. And so- mm. Uh, you know, as far as compared to the power of the Israeli nation state, Al-Qaeda is nothing. Al-Qaeda could never hurt them, right? And also you you have some things in there where you're arguing basically for him to be able to recruit and whatever. There's not hundreds of thousands of people willing to sign up to say, yeah, I don't think the Israelis should exist. I'm going to lay down my life in a suicide. But if instead it's they're occupying, you know, look what they're doing to the Palestinians. Right. Look what they're doing to this, this, this. That is what makes people willing to die. Yeah, and, and, and so, let me be real clear about that because, mm -hmm. you know what, 48 is not that long ago, right? But I think for most of the world and certainly for politicians in the region, and, you know, I mean, lifetimes are only so long, right? I, you know, mm -hmm. 48 becomes a fait accompli. It's done. It is. Israel, the state, exists. And that, I don't think anybody, you know, imagines that being undone in in uh, the sense that bin laden would have liked to see where all where israel's destroyed and all the jews have to flee back to wherever they came from in europe or elsewhere in the middle east or wherever but the controversy is not about really is not really is not about 48 the controversy just is so about, you're saying 1948 creation of the yeah state of israel right yeah, okay and at the expense of the palestinians right. uh, hundreds of thousands of them three quarters of a million of them but the real controversy is the situation since 1967, which is, you know, now we're talking 54 years since the Six-Day War. And what happened there was, see, back in 48, the Israelis, remember the UN mandate was both, both states get, the Israelis and the Palestinians each get a state, was the suggestion of the General Assembly. But the Israelis made a secret deal with the King of Jordan that you take the West Bank and rule the West Bank, and then we'll just fight the Syrians and the Egyptians. And so the King of Jordan made that deal. So the Palestinians on the West Bank were ruled by Jordan and never got to have their own state in the first place. Then when the war broke out in 67, the Palestinians are essentially just you know helpless and stuck in the middle here as these nation states fight. And it was Israel that started the war by attacking Egypt. And then Jordan and Syria attacked too. And then that becomes their excuse after they win the war that, okay, well, we won the West Bank. Now it all belongs to us. Although that's all illegal under international law. 
right? Since World War II and the United Nations Charter, which America essentially foisted on the world, you're not allowed to do that. If you occupy territory, it's only temporary under you know whatever situation. You're not allowed to move your civilians into it. You're not allowed to expand your borders by force. That's the entire doctrine of the so-called American-led world order that all this is in the name of in the first place. Mm-hmm. And yet what the Israelis started to do is move colonists into the West Bank. They want that land. They do not want to have peace and stability and security by letting the Palestinians have an independent state and put the controversy to rest. That's not the West Bank. That's Judea and Sumeria. And the people who live there, they're just going to have to go sooner or later, one day or another. So since the end of the Bush years and beginning of Bill Clinton, they promised under Oslo, Madrid and then Oslo, that we're going to have a this peace process means that at the end, we'll have a two-state solution where the Palestinians will finally have a state in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, and the Israelis will have to withdraw. But see, that was always a lie. They never meant it. The peace process was always meant to essentially just be a red herring, while the Israelis establish facts on the ground, is what they call it, meaning expanding Mm -hmm. settlements, building apartment complexes on every hilltop in the West Bank that they can and essentially separating the different Palestinian communities from each other by having Jewish-only roads and Israeli settlements carving the place up like South Africa, what they called Bantu stands in South Africa, where, you know, like counties, but they're all disconnected from each other. So you have no way of uniting politically or working together, doing anything. And they live essentially in a totalitarian state. They live under military occupation and not just like martial law. If you think of Joe Biden declaring martial law in America, this is occupation law, foreign occupation law. This is the law that ruled the American army in Baghdad is the law that rules the Israeli army on the West Bank. So essentially it's no law at all. It's a totalitarian state. They have no civil liberties, no civil rights under the rule of law that the Israeli government is bound to respect whatsoever. They literally, Bob, kidnap little children out of their beds at four o'clock in the morning in the middle of the night, like the Soviet NKVD or the Nazi Gestapo. And then they haul them into court, into a military administrative court where they don't even speak the language and throw them in the hole. It's absolutely just disgusting. It's one of the worst tyrannies on the planet. And America's responsible for every little bit of it through our financial support, military support, and our diplomatic cover that we provide for the Israelis and all the international institutions. And so when it comes to al-Qaeda terrorism against the United States, when bin Laden is denouncing the situation that the Palestinians live in, and then at the time in the 1990s, also talking heavily in, in that same piece that you quote there, he talks about the Kana massacre during Operation Grapes of Wrath in southern Lebanon. And this was uh, Shimon Perez launched this war. And- yeah, and just that title, like somebody launches Operation Grapes of Wrath against you, that's not, you know, no. hey, can we all get yeah, along? No, it's on. <laughs> and what they did was they killed 105 <laughs> women and children hiding in a United Nations shelter. And bin Laden said, it's the quotes right there. Hey, hang on, just to make sure that yeah. the audience, you're saying the Israeli yes. military. Bombed a United Nations shelter. Killed 105 civilians who were like taking shelter right. in a UN facility. And it was called, the, it's now called okay. the first Kana massacre because they did it again in 2006. But anyway, in 1996, mm-hmm. when they did this, bin Laden said, oh, so I get it. You think that your blood is blood, but our blood is just water. Well, I'll show you, right? Does that sound like... I mean, is that confusing at all? Mm -hmm. And so here's the deal. 
And you can read all about this in The Looming Tower by Lawrence Wright. And then it's also in Perfect Soldiers by Terry, uh, pardon me, not Terry. Um, I forgot the guy's name now. Perfect Soldiers is the name of the book. Great book. What happened was this. They launched Operation Grapes of Wrath in Hamburg, Germany. There was a group of engineering students who would go back to the apartment and argue about how much they hated Israel all day. And on the day that they launched Operation Grapes of Wrath, Mohammed Atta. So what, what year is this? 96. Okay. And so Mohammed Atta, who ended up being the lead hijacker on September 11th, Flight 11, he signed his last will and testament, which was basically a symbol of like, I'm joining the army. I'm dedicating myself to revenge for this. And uh, Ramzi bin Al-Sheib was his buddy, agreed with him. And then just a few months later, I think two months later, bin Laden put out that declaration of war against, I forgot if it was against the Americans occupying the land of the two holy places, or I think the one you read was from 98, right? Yeah, the one I read was 98. The the first one is- It was against the the Jews and the Zionist crusaders or something like that. No, no, you're right. The Jews and crusaders is the 98. 96 is against the Americans occupying the land of the two holy places. Again, mm-hmm. pretty subtle, huh? What his motive right. is, right? right? But he goes on and on in there about Operation Grapes of Wrath and about the Kana massacre. And then according to the book, Perfect Soldiers, Terry McDermott, that's his name, Terry McDermott. Uh, according to that book, Mohammed Atta and Ramsey bin Al-Sheib, they read bin Laden's declaration of war against America and especially saw all of his focus on what Israel had been doing in Lebanon. And by the way, they're killing Shiites here. These are radical, you know, Sunni Islamists, but they're taking the side. They're like, in this sense, they're like just acting as Arab nationalists and and are considering the Shia part of their same Ummah, the larger Muslim community. And just the same as a bunch of Egyptians and Saudis taking the Iraqi Shiite side when they were the ones mostly being bombed under Bill Clinton's no-fly zones. So what happened was they read that and then that was it. That was when Atta and bin al-Sheib traveled to Afghanistan and went and met with bin Laden and joined up. Said, hey man, we got visas. We're engineering students in Germany. And so that was how they got recruited into Al-Qaeda. It was based on, and see, try to explain this to your next door neighbor's mom, right? To see what happened was these Saudis and Egyptians wanted to kill Americans because of what Israel was doing in Lebanon. You lost me three nouns ago, right? I don't know what you're talking about anymore. Americans don't Mm -hmm. understand this stuff. That's why it's called blowback. It's not just consequences. It's consequences of secret foreign policies or at least opaque foreign policies. So when the consequences come, it's not obvious what's going on. And then people are left susceptible to alternative explanations. So on September 11th, they didn't say, this is because we've been serving the petty state of Israel over there and all of its goals. It's because they hate us because of how good and innocent we are. It's the only acceptable mm. explanation. Otherwise, they're incriminating themselves. They just can't possibly admit it. But we can be honest about it. You know, there's a, a comedian named David Cross from Arrested Development. You probably know the guy I'm talking about, right? The goofy guy. Uh, some people guy. have said that he and I bear a resemblance. Oh, you, <laughs> if you had his glasses, possibly. I think he's got a bit kind of different shaped head than yours, Bob. But anyway. I like Jack. Yeah. Okay. I recently saw him get into it with my boy Dave Smith, and it was bad because Dave Smith was standing for free speech and he wasn't. And I thought, you know what? I was reminded immediately that I remember some free speech by David Cross that could have gotten him banned and canceled Mm -hmm. if our banned and canceled situation now was in effect back in 2002. In 2002, it was brave. 
to say, seriously, for a comedian or for anyone else in that era to say what David Cross said about bin Ladenite terrorism against the United States. He went off and said, you know, George W. Bush says they hate us for our freedom. What are we, kindergartners? Was this elementary school? That's such a damn lie. And he's just mad about it. Mm-hmm. And he says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna censor myself for the punchline here, Bob. You'll be great. Okay. He says, they didn't attack us. Bin Laden did not attack the United States because they hate our freedom. They attacked us because we have bases in Saudi Arabia and for support for Israel. How do you know that, David? Because that's what he effing said. Right, right. That's what he mm-hmm. said he was doing. He hates us mm-hmm. for our bases in Saudi and our support for Israel. Freedom. Mm-hmm. Shut up. Get out of my face with that, you know? Right. And uh, at the time, though, that was like, whoa, are you sure people are, can handle a heavy truth like this? Right, right. There could have possibly been anything our government did to get us mm-hmm. in trouble with these guys, right. you know? You entertainers just hate America so much. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let me, why don't we bring this, give you a chance to address this. I can imagine some people hearing this and being like, yeah, Scott, you're right. People are people, especially military and governments, they do bad things. And if we just look at the list of crimes committed by the Israeli government, it's going to be a long list. But, you know, there kind of was a context. There was a reason the UN formed the, you know, the Israeli state in 48 because some stuff had happened in Germany and da 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 And um, basically, if it comes, if you're telling me, Scott, it's coming down to a war of religions and it's, you know, the Muslims are going to war against the Jews and we, what are we Christians in America supposed to do? We're going to stand with the Jews. Give me a break. No, well, that's what hilarious. Say I mean, look, the King Fod told FDR, well, give them mm-hmm. the best part of Germany. What are you giving them Palestine? The Palestinians didn't mm-hmm. do the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Look, the theory here, Bob, as I think you understand and as your audience understands, and this is almost as true now as it was then. I mean, I guess I'd have to concede it was worse then. But the idea here really is, is these are a bunch of sand and words. These are towel heads and camel jockeys and lesser human men than Anglos and even European Jews at the end of World War II. And if they have to get the hell out of the way, they can just get the hell out of the way. And you hear it all the time, even to this day, you hear Zion say, why can't they all just go live somewhere else? Well, you're living in their grandmother's house. Why should they? Mm-hmm. They should go live out in the deserts of Western Iraq. They should be pushed to have to live in Jordan so that a bunch of people from Germany and Russia and Lithuania and New York City can come and live on their land. How is that okay? Mm-hmm. And this is why they lied, right? This is why they pretended and said, well, it's a land without people for a people without land. But that wasn't true. It was a land without people after they ethnically cleansed 750,000 Muslims and Christians out of their homes, which is like the population of all of Austin, Texas, at bayonet point and at rape point, at massacre point. And then it was a conspiracy theory. It was a crazy conspiracy theory, Bob, that there was such a thing as Palestinians. The great American journalist, Eric Margulies, his mother, was one of the, she was like this brave, independent feminist woman, went over there after World War II and interviewed all the kings and sultans and potentates and was like a really big deal of a journalist over there. And when she came home, they threatened to kill her and they threatened to kill little baby Eric Margulies because she dared to tell the truth that there was such a thing as the Palestinians. And they were living in these hovels and refugee camps in the West Bank 
after a quarter of a million of them had been purged from their land. And now they were living in refugee camps all over the, the region. This is a secret. This was top secret. And if you said it, then you were an anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist. That Palestinians even existed, Bob. That there was even mm -hmm. such a thing that these people had to get out of the way. And then for the, for the people who knew that it was true, eh, who cares? Mm -hmm. The European Jews, they're whiter. And especially after what Christendom had just done to them, supposedly, then right. they get to have this land. But it's just totally not fair. You know, that's like, you know, you beat me up in a fight. So then as compensation, I get to steal your next door neighbor's house and live in it or his car or whatever. It's just, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't hold together at all. It never did. And the Zionist project, they thought, well, maybe we'll move to Madagascar or maybe we'll move to Argentina. The guys who founded Zionism didn't even believe in God. They were atheist communists. So to say like Menachem Begin is the savior meant to bring Jews back to Palestine and all that, that wasn't the ticket. That wasn't the excuse at the time. You know, the excuse, or um, I'm sorry, I said Begin, but I meant to say all... Well, uh, uh, ben Gurion. That's why I meant to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they used to joke about that. In fact, you got to read Sheldon Richmond and you got to read Sheldon Richmond's book, Coming to Palestine, and you got to interview him about it. It's so good. Mm -hmm. And Sheldon is just the best of us. And he talks all about how American religious Jews and American reformed Jews were all against the Zionist project and all said that it was wrong and that it would, you know, cause all these problems and lead to American problems in the Middle East and lead to accusations of divided loyalties among American Jews here and all of these things that all have come to pass, you know, and it's just completely unjustified. And by the way, as far as like, oh, well, we're the Christians, we have to go protect the Jews. Hi, I'm sorry. Let me introduce you to the history of the world. It's always been the Christians against the Jews and the Muslims. And it was the Muslims who protected the Jews up until the end of World War II. Okay. The whole time when the Christians kicked all of the Muslims out of Spain, guess who went with them? The Jews. They all, and, and they were safe to flee to Palestine. Guess what? A land without people. Yeah, who would have thought the eastern seaboard of the Mediterranean was never settled by human men, huh? Somehow, even though we all know that it was, that's where the Bible comes from, from thousands of years ago. But anyway, that's where they all went when they were kicked out of Spain. It was always the Christians versus the Muslims and the Jews. So now say, like, oh yeah, no, the, the role of Christians in the world is we're, all we're trying to do is protect the Israeli Jews from the hordes of these uh, barbarian Muslims coming after them to kill them and push them into the sea. It's such a lie. In fact, I forget the guy's name now, Bob, but the whole talking point that they want to push all the Jews into mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. sea, that was an Israeli Mossad agent in Egypt who made that up who was pretending to be an anti-Zionist, but worked for the Israeli government. He's the one who coined that phrase in the first place. Yeah, we're gonna push all you Jews into the sea. It was a false flag threat in the first place. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, check out a map. Egypt is run by loyal slaves of the United States of America, okay? They had a popular democratic revolution, America and the military dictatorship canceled it in a year and a half, okay? In Jordan, the sock puppet king is the Israelis' loyal servant. In Hezbollah, in southern Lebanon, Hezbollah has the power to keep Israel out, but they don't have the power to invade. They could launch a rocket volley and get blasted off the face of the earth in response, but they, could, they don't have the infantry to invade into northern Israel. And they, if they try, they wouldn't make it very far. And then, of course, Syria is helpless. The Israelis have been bombing the Syrians virtually every day for almost 10 years now, nine mm -hmm. years now. 
through the whole Syria war, every time they think Iran is shipping some weapons to Hezbollah, they bomb them and including in the capital city there with no response from Syria this entire time at all because they're helpless. They can't do a thing about it. Mm-hmm. Israel's the nuclear hegemon. They're surrounded by weak and friendly states. The idea that there are these rabid hordes of Muslims who are all coming to push all the white European Jewish Israelis into the sea is just silly propaganda for fools and fools moms to just believe because they saw it on the TV. If you mm-hmm. actually look at the map, this whole scenario does exist, but you got to zoom in. It's the people of the Gaza Strip who are being threatened with being pushed into the sea. It's the people of the Gaza Strip who are this tiny little besieged prison state that's surrounded by overwhelmingly powerful enemies that they are helpless to resist in every way, which in fact, and they, and who they carpet bomb, who the Israelis, you know, massacre every once in a while. I'm surprised actually that Netanyahu finally toned this down. But in the Obama years, he launched three major wars against the people of Gaza who are absolutely helpless to resist. And they are the ones who are actually living that ridiculous propaganda fantasy of poor little helpless besieged Israel over there. They are by mm. far the most powerful state in the region by orders of magnitude, you know, 50, 100 mm. times over. Okay, good. I wanted to get your response to that. We, I only got you for about 12 minutes or so here. Let's pull back and give you an analogy first. So when it comes to, you know, I'm an economist, when it comes to something like minimum wage legislation, in Washington, you know, they want to raise it to $15 an hour. So I can sit there and point out to the American public, here's why you shouldn't support it. This is why it's going to give the exact opposite of the people you think you're helping, you're hurting with this, da, da, da. But behind the scenes, it's not, I don't think, you know, the senators and people pushing this, they don't believe their own rhetoric. The real reason they're doing it is to help unions, for example, you know, because the unions are more productive and they have higher, and so you're getting rid of their cheap labor that competes with them. Mm-hmm. So- the negative consequences I would be spelling out to the public is why you shouldn't support this. Mm-hmm. Is the That's the feature, not a bug. Right. So I'm wondering with all this stuff, you know, your book, you're explaining why this is not achieving the, the stated goal, but is all this stuff, the U.S. foreign policy, actually doing what it's designed to do? Sort of, kind of. I mean, it depends on who you ask, right? And, mm-hmm. and everybody's an individual. So there are plenty of people in the government who all they ever really wanted to do was kill bin Laden's friends and keep us safe or whatever, right? There's no denying that. But- The project itself, the entire project of empire is, and this goes for every other government program that you study too, Mm. Bob, but the military, the Pentagon itself, I don't know who coined this originally, it might've been Chuck Spinney or something, but they all call it this, the self-licking ice cream cone. And so that means on one hand, it's, you know, a department, a government department, a government program in, in search of a reason to exist, but it also means more to the point, really a government department that makes its own reasons to exist, right? So sure, let's let's launch a war in Libya. And if it doesn't work out, and all it does is spread terrorist problems throughout Western Africa, well, that's okay too. Because then we'll mm. just expand and you know give ourselves promotions and move on to the next stage. We got to chase the jihadis down into Mali now. We got to chase them into Burkina Faso and Chad and Niger and Nigeria. And so- Who's hurt by that other than the victims? But in terms of on on the American bureaucrat, the national security bureaucracy, just like with anything else, they fail upwards. You know, um, the last thing, in fact, I remember, I don't remember the guy's name anymore, Bob, but uh, back in the 1990s and early 2000s, there was this old 
businessman that they used to interview on Fox News all the time. And I remember it must have been like on September 15th or 20th or something, like right after the attack. And they start proposing a a cabinet office. It wasn't a department yet. It was going to be the Office of Homeland Security. And they asked him, well, what'd you think about that? And he goes, oh, that's the worst idea I ever heard in my life. The first thing they have to do is make sure there's more terrorism so that they have a reason to exist. You don't want to do that. And they were like, okay, thank you very much for your time, wise old friend who we've turned to for his commentary for the last nine years straight or whatever. Bye, and you'll never be back again. You're gone. And But he was, of course, right that, you know, not that Homeland Security is very good at creating terrorism, but look at the FBI. The FBI is framed up, and this is true. You can check Trevor Aronson is, is the best journalist on this. More than 350 entrapment cases where the FBI basically, his book is called The Terror Factory, where these guys go and find idiots to trick into saying, yes, I love Osama bin Laden. Now can I have my $20,000 you promised me? And then give them life in prison and parade them on TV and call them a terrorist threat and all of this stuff. Just so we just saw the new the new domestic terrorism law in the in the reaction to January 6th at the Capitol, the first bill that they put forward, uh, as far as I understand, I don't think it had any new crimes in it. But the first mm-hmm. thing it did was that it created new domestic right wing terrorism departments inside the Department of Homeland Security and inside the FBI, which all now need things to do. And if they run out of Nazis, they're going to have to create some. And we've seen this before with the PatCon operation in the 1990s that like mostly, thank goodness, the radical right in America have jobs and responsibilities and aren't really ready to wage a revolution and do anything violent, you know, except for the very, very smallest percentile of them. And so what's a bunch of cops supposed to do in a situation like that other than infiltrate them with informants and try to get them to at least say something worse, if not do something much worse. It happens all the time. In fact, I just, Trevor Aronson, I just interviewed him about a case of some Boogaloo boys who were tricked by an FBI informant into agreeing to buy some weapons from Hamas, which Hamas had nothing to do with it whatsoever. It was just the FBI mm-hmm. pretending the whole time. But they entrapped some Boogaloo boys into this kind of thing. Because you can always find some idiot to entrap into a thing if you're a cop. And it's the same thing really with the the military. that. You know, it's not to say that, no, they really, you know, lost the Iraq war on purpose, right? Iraq war two was supposed to be easy. And the reason they lost is because they had no idea what they were doing. They were listening to David Wormser and Richard Pearl and Paul Wolfowitz tell them, yeah, we game this out. It's going to be great. And they didn't know what they were talking about. And so they just ruined everything. At the same time, though, there's no denying that the generals in charge, some of them at least were saying, okay, well, Fine. We'll just chase the consequences of the problem that we've created and, you know, chase them all the way around in a circle again. It wasn't, um, what, three years before they had to launch Iraq War Three. It was three and a half years later they launched Iraq War Three after uh, building up the crisis in Syria. And if you listen to, you know, any of these think tanks or any of these foreign policy experts, they always talk about events in these smallest little chunks of time. You know, I just saw there's a new book out. It's about the heroic feminist Kurdish fighters of the YPG in Syria. For some reason, Bob, there was an Islamic State caliphate that they had to fight. Nobody knows where it came from. Nobody can explain to you why Al-Qaeda in Iraq from Iraq War II was virtually dead and gone by 2009. And yet all of a sudden within just a couple of years, they have an entire Islamic State caliphate in eastern Syria and western Iraq. 
Now, of course, you read my book, you see why this is all George Bush and Barack Obama's fault. But according to this book, what a bunch of heroic feminist, bookchinist, you know, YPG, Kurdish fighters who bravely, no lie, bravely fought these Islamic State madmen, war criminals, you know? But so we can just write a whole book about that and how much we owe the Kurds and all these things without ever admitting how it got to be this way at all, without ever saying, even today, even you hear good libertarians say, you know, ISIS would have never happened if it wasn't for Bush's war in Iraq. Well, what about Obama's war in Syria? Aren't you guys paying attention? It was Obama's war in Syria that built up the Islamic State. It was Bush's war in Iraq that made it so that Western Iraq was wide open for the taking. But, it, you know, mm -hmm. the antecedents get truncated. And then, you know, with that, the lessons get lost, right? They attacked us on September 11th. It was the first day in history. Now we have to start defending ourselves. And, you know, as I say in the book, we keep having terrorist attacks, right? And luckily, they've been on a lot smaller scale than September 11th, but we had Fort Hood. We had uh, San Bernardino. There's been a couple in New York. And I'm not talking false flag, you know, FBI entrapment jobs, but I mean real right, ones. Right. We had in Pensacola and in Corpus Christi within, you know, the last year. There was at the very end of, of 2019 and, and then in the spring of 2020, there were attacks by Saudis recruited by Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula who shot up the naval air stations where they were training in Pensacola, Florida, and in Corpus Christi, Texas. And they said, the guy, I'm the only one on the whole internet who quoted the whole thing. If you look at my article at antiwar.com, and I, I think I quote him in the book too, no one else on the whole internet quoted the whole thing except me. I found it from his Twitter on the Wayback Machine, where the Pensacola guy says in perfectly clear language that I do not, that's his first statement, I do not hate your freedom. That's not what this is. And then the whole thing is, this is all about taking revenge for American foreign policies. And it continues. And, you know, there's a great, there's the only reporter in New York Times that I actually like, some of them I tolerate. The only one I like is a guy named Thomas Gibbons Neff. And he was a former Marine and fought in, I'm almost certain in Iraq War II, but I know he fought in Afghanistan. Pretty sure he was also in Iraq War II. And he used to write for the Washington Post. I quote him in Fool's Errand after the Boston bombing attack. And he goes, well, wait a minute, man. These guys say, because the, the older brother died, but the younger brother lived and scratched a note basically on the inside of the fiberglass of the boat he was hiding in in a guy's backyard when they caught him. Mm -hmm. And he'd written this whole statement about why they'd done it. And it was because of the American wars in, for one, Afghanistan. And Thomas Gibbons Neff wrote this really thoughtful thing for the Washington Post where he goes, you know, I'm over here in Afghanistan acting, I don't think these were his exact words, but the, this is an army phrase, acting as a bullet sponge, right? I'm over here, I thought, because by attracting all the, the bad guys and the terrorists to me, I'll sacrifice myself, I'll risk my life to take the fight to them here far away from my family and from my homeland. But now I'm reading the paper and it says that the Boston bombing attack was inspired by the war I'm fighting in Afghanistan. So that kind of makes the whole thing moot, doesn't it? What am I doing over here? I thought I was mm -hmm. fighting against terrorism, but now I'm provoking it. The logic has fallen apart. And there's been quite a few of these and some of them could have been really bad. You know, the Times Square attack, that bomb luckily failed to detonate, but that could have killed many, many civilians. The San Bernardino massacre and the Omar Mateen and the massacre in the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. I mean, that was an absolute horror show. So, I mean, it wasn't as bad as September 11th, but it could have been really bad. Th that one, can you just, yeah, on that one, 
that's the one too, right? Where originally they tried to cast that as like some guy who just hated gay people. Oh man, let me tell you, Bob. Can I mean, you tell a little bit about that? Yeah. So what happened was this was a gay nightclub, Pulse nightclub mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. Orlando where he attacked and oh, they spun it that this guy was a repressed homosexual himself and his horrible, evil, backwards, barbarian religion condemned him for being gay. So even though he loved men, he couldn't admit it to himself. And he had all this mm -hmm. internal repression and oppression. And then one day he snapped and he went and murdered a bunch of gay men at a nightclub. Mm -hmm. Oh man, that's such a lie. None of it was true. None of it. He wasn't gay at all. And we only found all of this out when they were so bold as to try to put his wife on trial and she was acquitted, but it all came out in her trial that mm -hmm. all of this was a lie. There was no repressed homosexual tendency whatsoever had anything to do with this. The only reason he hit that nightclub, Bob, was because he went and he, I guess he researched Disney World and he decided there was too much security there. He'd never get past the first gates and whatever. And so he decided that he just Googled nightclub and Pulse was the first. Right, my understanding is he up. didn't even realize it was a gay nightclub. He just thought it was a nightclub. That's exactly yeah. right. It was the first nightclub that came up on the list and he went in there and he killed him. And then, by the way, this is a whole other separate, it's a, it's a smaller scandal in a way, but it is really important that there were heroic cops that ran right in there to try to save the day. And the guy had cornered himself in the bathroom with a bunch of hostages by that time. And these cops were ready to risk their life. And they're walking over piles of dead bodies. And they're ready mm -hmm. to risk their life to kick open the door of the bathroom and die in a shootout with this guy if they have to to get him. And then their bosses called them back. You have to get out of there. You're not allowed to proceed. Get out, get out. And then they just sat out there for hours like cowards and did nothing while people are bleeding out and dying by the dozens in there. And then finally, they used a battering ram to knock a hole in the wall of the bathroom and all the people started coming out of the wall. And then the cops just started massacring everyone as the innocent civilians tried to escape. The Landor PD just started waxing people, like at least 10 of them or something as they were trying to escape from- Really, I never heard that it's element of it. Wow. crazy. Yeah, I mean, we were watching huh. it happen as it, ha as it was going on. And by the way, so while he was locked in that bathroom, he wrote on Facebook about his motive, it was all about American foreign policy. You're killing women and children in Syria and in, Af in Iraq and Afghanistan, and this is my revenge. And of course, this is after Obama had built up the Islamic State and then launched a war against it. So this guy's like, I'm fighting for the Islamic State that you're bombing. We were friends with the Islamic State the other day, you know? Anyway, not exactly. That's oversimplifying it. But yeah, really, it was Turkey and Saudi who built up the Islamic State. Well, they're America's sock puppet allies. They did that. The CIA coordinated the whole thing. The Qataris, the Jordanians, the Turks, the Israelis, and the Saudis all worked together to finance the jihad in Syria. And so once it built up into the Islamic State, oh, then they had to bomb it again and prove Zawahiri right that you got to get rid of the Americans first. And so that was his motive. And then it wasn't until months later, I think it was like, I don't know, at least six, eight weeks later, something like that, that they finally released the transcript of the 911 call. And so they had spent all this time talking about how all oh, the Muslims hate gay people. And listen, and there was a real effect about this. Like, I think I remember Greenwald wrote about like there was in, in gay media, I don't know if it was the advocate or whatever, but there was a lot of reaction against this. Like, geez, you know, us gay people are so liberal and tolerant and including of Muslims, but geez, maybe we're really making a mistake in being right, tolerant of Muslims because right, apparently they yeah. hate us and want to kill us. And it was all just mm -hmm. bullshit. All, oh, sorry, it was, edit that, Chris. It was all a lie. <laughs> it was never true. 
it was all because Barack Obama was murdering women and children. As simple as that, dropping bombs on their heads from the sky. Well, just more generally, all the, and I, I'm ashamed to admit this, even when I was reading your book, and you just matter of factly said how terrorist attacks, you know, blowback is is up, and you listed cities, including U.S. ones, and I was like, what, what is Scott talking about? There was no blowback here, and I realized it's because I was, you know, listening to how the media were framing it, and like I said, like the Pulse nightclub, that was never described as, oh yes, well, this is what's happened because of our foreign policy. Yeah. That, that wasn't it. it hey, was, look at look at um, Hassan. I always forget his first name. I want to say Omar Hassan, but that's a heroic pro skateboarder. Totally different guy. Anyway, the the psychiatrist, the, the army major who did the massacre right. at Fort Hood in 2010, mm -hmm. they called that workplace violence. They said he went postal under the stress mm -hmm. of, you know, his the workaday mm -hmm. pressures of his job there. Oh, really? He massacred 13 boys about to deploy to Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. They were ready to deploy to Afghanistan. They were combat soldiers. And his men, there was no question about why he did that. And then they admitted later, oh, yeah, the FBI knew that he'd been in contact with Anwar al-Awlaki, mm -hmm. who was the American al-Qaeda propagandist, apologist, YouTube star living in Yemen at the time. Oh, gee, but they didn't think to tell all of his commanding officers that you better be watching this guy like a hawk, man. He's emailing back and forth with al-Qaeda's number one preacher. And, you know, there's, again— they drop the ball. They fail. They provoke these attacks. They completely fail to protect us. And then they say we need more and more of the same. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that's, uh, I, I respect your time here. Oh, man. And there. I got to go. I'm sorry. I'm late. Yep. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Scott, thank folks. You, Bob. Here's the book, Enough Already. And keep up the good work, Scott. We'll be in touch. Real appreciate it, buddy. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.